0: But I've loved this because one thing that's true about Jesus is it's always about the heart with him. Like it's always where he's going is to the heart. So you don't get to read his words long without realizing that he is doing something greater, that he, is, that he is focused on something that very often we are not focused on. Even as parents, are we often just focused on behavior? Don't do that. Don't say that. Don't talk like that. Don't treat your sister that way. Uh, Don't don't sit like that. When somebody walks in the room, you act like this. And so even as parents who, I mean, I would say just for the parents in the room who probably love their children more than anyone else, even for parents, where do we go but often to behavior modification to try and instruct on how you should be? Uh, But Jesus, Throughout all of chapter five, has been taking behavior and saying, You've heard it say, do this. But I'm telling you, there's more to it than that, than just the box that you feel like you can check off. So again, with today's passage, we'll hear that in Matthew five, uh, thirty-eight through forty-two. Another, you have heard. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth For a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you, forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. Father, it seems natural, natural for us to want to get even and try and be sure on this side of eternity that everything's taken care of, every wrong has been righted, we got it all. But your son shows us a better way. And when we look at him, both in his teaching and his example, we see something different. And that's what we need. So our request as a people this morning is that you would empower us by your spirit to understand what is being said in Matthew 5 and teach us to be radical in the ways that you would have us be radical, to be a people who are different because of Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Now, the longer you live, the harder, or at least for me, the longer I live, the harder it is for me to remember how old I was when something happened. Uh, or, you know, like it just gets blurry. So I could say I was in third grade, but I might be making that up. I could say I was in second grade. I, I'm fairly confident I was in elementary school. But my memory does not serve me well when I'm trying to remember these moments anymore. I was in elementary school more than likely, and I recall hearing something from a family member. And it was one of those things that when you hear it, and I remember it, struck, it stuck with me because, because this family member was taking things said by Jesus seriously. And this was a peer, this was, you know, like another elementary school kid uh, that was taking something Jesus said seriously. And it might have been the first time, my first experience hearing somebody say something that was in the Bible, that something that Jesus said, and going, huh, like you, do, you, you care about doing things that Jesus said. My other memory was when I was asked to find a chapter and verse in the Bible, and I had no idea how, and I was traumatized. Because you look for it, and you think you found it, and like you think that the chapter is the verse, and so when they say Isaiah, whatever, you get to the wrong spot. And they're like, I think that was wrong. Well, I've had to go to seminary twice to overcome all the trauma that that one, that one mistake caused me. Um, but I do remember, now I remember hearing my family say, Jesus said this so I'm doing that. Now if you're in elementary school now or you have been there or you're on your way way there even at the age and there are certain things that are pretty important or were pretty important. So one thing that was pretty important was like you had to have a good gaming system. Now you're like I know if you're in elementary school now you're like good. I was like I know like Nintendo didn't seem good, but just hang with me. You had to have something cool that your friends wanted to play on. Like that was a rule. And so you had to have a reason people wanted to come to your house. And video games is still often the reason, right? So the reason when I was there, the reason when you were there. So you had to have that, had to be taken care of. But you also had to have a good mode of transportation, a good bike. You didn't have a good bike, you were done for. So reason for people to come to your house, usually video games. Cool parents helped, but video games and a way to get around, a bike, which is hard for me because there were many times I was riding around on my sister's 10-speed. But good bike was necessary. So I'm talking with this family member, and uh, his bike was stolen, which is a common kid thing. I think I've had a bike stolen before. Uh, So bike gets stolen because we all leave them in the front yard. They, They move on out. Bike gets stolen, and he says to me, right, like, I'm thinking, to steal a bike, that's a big deal. I mean, I remember staying at my friend Brandon's house one time, and the bikes got stolen out of the front yard, and we were up all night, and we called, we called the police at like 3 in the morning. Uh, and we had a police scanner, and we were listening in to see when they would get there. And, you know, they didn't take my sister's 10 speed, they took his bike, uh, which makes sense when you would have seen the bike. Um, so my bike was fine, my sister's bike was fine, uh, but his was gone. So you were, I'm like, this is a big deal, but what? what does this person say? I think I should give the guy my skateboard, too. And I'm like, well, that's dumb. Why would you do that? Because Jesus said, right, if someone would take your tunic, give him your cloak. And I was like, w-. it really was the first time as a kid going, you really think that like, when Jesus says stuff, you're supposed to c- consider it? You know, these are just things we read. We read them and we go to church on Sundays and we read stories because that's a good thing to do. It's nice to read stories, it's helpful. But to actually consider them and change how you act, even in elementary school because of that, that's a little overboard. It still sticks with me. I was even talking with this person about it as I was preparing this sermon a few weeks ago. I was like, Was it your bike or your skateboard, right? Because memory fails me. He goes, Oh, no, my bike was definitely stolen. now, truth be told, because parents can get in there and bungle it up, I don't know if mom or dad, where it's like, no, you can't do that, I don't know the rules, but I just know the heart. I should give them this too, because Jesus said, if somebody takes this from you, go ahead and give them something else. You can take my bike, here's my skateboard, you can have both of those. And there were probably a few reasons as a kid I, I felt this way, but I think one of the reasons I felt this way then, and would probably still feel this way if not for Jesus, is Because we feel this need, and Hannah said it so well in the video, we feel this need that if you do something to me, I need to do it too. And there is a word that kids throw around, and adults do it too, we just try to do it more properly, but the word fair, that's, you know, it's not fair that they get to do this and I don't. It's not fair that this happened and I didn't get to do it. It's not fair, especially in COVID life. It's not fair that they had a birthday party in February, but I didn't have a birthday party in April. It's not fair that I can't go to school with all my friends. It's not fair that this can't happen. We have all these words about fairness where we go, somebody got something. I didn't get the same thing. And even as people head into the holidays, what do you get? I mean, some people have like budgets for like, we have to spend the exact same amount of money on every family member, on every child, on everything. So that we can say, listen, we, just, we were totally judicious in our approach. Like We were fine with it. Everybody got you know, $3 spent on them, and you all got three lottery tickets scratch-offs, and so best of luck. Um, you know, whatever we try to do, well, there's, they won. I, didn't, I wanted these, but not that. We have all these ways of trying to get even, and when we're wrong, we really feel this need to go, well, you, you need to suffer for what you've done. But what about for the people who follow Jesus? Jesus and and his death on the cross for our sins, fair? No. The righteous for the unrighteous, fair? No. The life of the Son of God, so that we might believe, fair? No. No. It's always fun to try to Jesus-duke your kids. to be like, you want to do fair? You know, like we try to have all those words we use. But no, not fair. But we'll still operate in the way of the world, maybe even just in the way that we've seen when it comes to issues of fairness or what we feel should be just. Sometimes, though, we have this word retribution, where we have to come back harder than we were wrong. And it just escalates really quickly. I joked before with you guys about how if I get hit in the nose, I'm going to tear your arms off. Because there's just something about my nose. I start sneezing. It's just really obnoxious. I hate the feeling. My eyes start to water. And so I'm like, don't touch my nose. And if you touch my nose, I don't know what happens. But now all bets are off. And all of us have these things where if this happens to me, i got to come back harder. Have to come back harder, and I remember being taught, you know, a, a more fair version of retribution early on in life by family members, which was if somebody hits you, you gotta, you know, hit them back. They hit you, you gotta hit them back. That's what we're taught. But Jesus does something different in this passage. And it's interesting, too, because whereas he's often given one or two applications afterwards, he actually gives four. So his first two statements are really short. You have heard it said this, but I say this, illustration, or, uh, you know, illustration, 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 illustration. And then he tells you four ways that this might work out. So Matthew 5, 38 through 42, it's really 38, 39A, the first half, 39B, the second half, to the end. Like those are our breakdowns. And Jesus, again, from law, heart to application, is going to show us this. And this is the law part. And I'm going to summarize it, uh, summarize it like this, uh, that justice should always be equal. Now, I was thinking about how if you're outside or you're watching this online, you see that and you go, oh yeah, absolutely, like that's what you're saying. Jesus is quoting the law that justice should always be equal, but there's a reason that he's Doing that, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. First, let's look at Exodus. Exodus twenty-one twenty-four: eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. There's a there's a law like and that this is about if somebody you know gouges out your eye, take theirs. If, uh, if you know if you do this, you do that to them. So it's all about equal punishment for the crime. Leviticus twenty-four: fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. Deuteronomy, your eyes shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So why do these laws exist? Seem rather fair. Kids would probably agree. Yes, you punch me, I punch you. You hurt me, I hurt you. You break this, I break that. That's how we'll make it work. The laws here actually are, they exist to curb our desire for retaliation. They exist to limit our heart's desire to go harder and stronger at the one who has wronged us. So that we do not exceed what happened to us. So it's not about trying to go, well, I don't think you're going to be fair for it, uh, so let's go ahead and bring it up. No, it's, it's, it's about limiting what you might do. The law says this for this, this for this, this for this, so that you don't go too strong at it. Anybody who, you know, has been in legal proceedings knows that like some people are going to throw a lot of money at defending their case and you might not have that money and so already, right, the scales don't seem tipped. The law was trying to say, no, we're going to govern, right, limit what you might want to do in these instances. So, I don't know if you guys watch The West Wing. It's a good show. I think it's a good show. You might not think it's a good show. But there's a great episode in season one of The West Wing called A Proportional Response. A Proportional Response. Um, So a plane that was carrying Americans is shot down, and a friend of the president dies. The president's angry, of course, which would... I think anger is an appropriate (laughs) response when something like that might happen... And so he's in the situation room and he is annoyed because they give him all of these ways that they could retaliate. And they say, we've come up with four proportional responses that you could could do. And so at this time, he asked several times, the president asked several times, what is the virtue of a proportional response? What is the virtue? And they're like, excuse me? What is the virtue? Like, why do we do it? So when asked, what else is there? What else is there? Sir, but, you know, What else is there? What's our other response? And this is his answer. A disproportional response. Let the word ring out from this time, in this place, you kill an American, any American. We don't come back with a proportional response. We come back with total disaster. And much of the episode is dealing with that Tension with wanting to make a statement. There's a response given towards the end of a, yeah, here he goes, come back and give me disproportional responses. The response that, they do that, of course, because it's the president, and you do what the president asks, but then when given feedback, he says, this is a strike that would be seen at home and abroad as a staggering overreaction by a first-time commander-in-chief That without the support of our allies, without a Western coalition, without Great Britain Britain and Japan, without Congress, you have doled out a $5,000 punishment for a 50-buck crime, sir. Such a law, as we read Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, is to help us not go overboard in our responses to others when we're wronged. Now, because of that, it doesn't mean you must always act in this way. Because Jesus is going to say as much. Jesus is actually going to flip the limiting nature of that law and say, let me tell you something else that you could actually do. That is in keeping with the character of God, the grace of God, so that's what he'll do in the next half. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now this might be a funny, a funny phrase, uh, and I'll have to parse it out a little bit. But when I say non-resistance, non-resistance or not resisting reflects knowing God's ways, he's about to explain why that is. So don't resist is the language he says. So knowing God's ways, knowing God's heart, knowing God's desire, there is a different way to approach it. So when Jesus says, I say to you, don't resist the one who is, and what's the word he uses to describe them? Evil. Don't resist the one who is evil. I know in our heads we're going to go to a a lot of different examples of, well, what about this or what about that or what about this and what about that? right? And I, I understand that. In fact, and I think there's a there's a community group question for this week, uh, which is something to the effect of like what, when are there times where you need to pursue some level of justice on this earth? When are there times when you need to be sure you respond and don't let evil exist in the world as it has? But let's just look at the tension here for a moment between law and Jesus' response. Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He isn't doing away with it, yet how does it sound here? Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, he says that. Then he said, but I say to you, don't resist. Don't actually make the exchange. So how is that fulfilling the law? Shouldn't he be running around being sure that everything happens proportionally? And that's why we have to go to the heart that non-resistance reflects knowing God's ways. And it isn't just anyone. Remember the word. He says, don't resist the one who is evil. The one who has done wrong to you maliciously. It's clear intent that someone is trying to wrong you and you are a righteous person. He's talking to his disciples. Let's not forget that. Legally, you have your right. What he's saying is lay it down. Lay it down. This idea shows up in both the New Testament Scriptures and the Old Testament Scriptures about not needing to get what might even be due to you. So we'll start in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 where the uh, church is suing one another. And listen to what he says. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat to you. You're already losing by suing each other. Why not suffer wrong? Why not be defrauded? I have been around a table with people who were at a significant legal disagreement over, I can't recall, I think it was millions of dollars. But no small chunk of change. Brothers, sisters, people disagreeing is not uncommon. It's not uncommon. As potentially you know, you're planning your estate, and you know as you uh, continue, you know it's with your one age. You just have kids. Like, we need a will. And then as you get older, you're like, we need more than just a will. Like, we need people to help us plan this, we need help people to plan that, we need that. And you start to go, well, which kid's going to be the power of attorney? And you start to go, you know, it's like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo.' how do you pick that? You're like, oh gosh, right? And you have to start thinking about all the things that might come into play as you're thinking about the family dynamics that might show up after you're gone. We have a really fairly common for us to argue. But Paul says here, the fact that you're suing each other as a church already means you're losing wouldn't you rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather be wronged? Just lose the suit. Isaiah 53, a passage in the Old Testament, specific Isaiah, that if we're familiar with any part of Isaiah, this might be the part we're the most familiar with because it talks about the character of uh, the suffering servant. He was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus was just. Jesus was righteous. Jesus was wrongly treated, falsely accused, lied about in court, and took the punishment that came with it. And so, let's just be sure when we're thinking about Jesus that he, he has gone further with living this out than any one of us ever has or will. This heart. Jesus surrendered His right. He did not resist. Are there examples in Scripture where people will use their legal authority to uh, get something that is due them. Yes, I'll give you an example. The Apostle Paul makes an appeal to Caesar. In the book of Acts, you'll find him say, I'm a Roman citizen. I'm a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. And they're like, oh, we're sorry, we didn't know you are a Roman citizen, we can't treat you that way. So at what, at what times do you make, make an appeal like that, and what times do you not? I think that takes a lot of prayer and a lot of wisdom to know the specific situation But I also know the human heart and laying down our rights is not something that we do. Letting someone win the argument that they actually lost. Letting someone have the thing that they stole from you and not giving it back. Giving them more than that. Treating an enemy with kindness knowing that they've done something wrong to you and not being concerned about seeing that through to the fullest extent of the law, that is Christ-like. At what times and in what ways and what situations might that happen, I don't know all of them. But I'm sure that within this room, we can come up with twice as many scenarios as people in this room. Well, what do you do here? Or I had this happen to my family or I had this happen to my church or I had this happen here or I had this happen there I had this happen there. Not saying that Jesus' statements make everything make a ton of sense. But again, Jesus is pointing to our hearts. You want to retaliate. The law is trying to limit your retaliation, but if you know my ways, you don't even need to think about it. There's a whole different response that you can give. That's what he's going to say in 39. Second half, 40, 41, and 42. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, which is a significant offense, turn the other to him also. There's example one. Example two. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Sure, you can have that and this. Three. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Four give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Four examples. It's like the most illustrated one of this. It's just so jarring for us. I'm going to get minor details of this story wrong, so you're welcome. You won't know that, but I've told you. Uh, But, you know, fundraising in churches is always a funny thing. And... uh, I had was retold a story, and this was many years ago, that I was told the story many years ago before that the story happened. Uh, but, you know, often when you're raising money in churches, there are people who have more dollars than others. And so, in any fundraising campaign, there are often people, and it could be in a church or somewhere else, where a good portion of what you're doing is going to be provided by a small portion of people. People who can write a million dollar check, <clears throat> Right? And like, praise God for people who have means and want to use it generously and graciously to support whatever work might be going on. And so I have no problem with that. <clears throat> I, know, I know that part of church life. But what happens when somebody gives and then they don't like what the church has done? And this is, gets really weird, doesn't it? Because you're not a stakeholder, but you are. Like, for every gift you give, you don't get a certain number of Genesis stocks, right? Like, you know, that goes up and down. And so, you know, so if you give $1,000, you get one share, and then those become votes when we have our meetings. And however, many, however much giving you've done, those become your shares. But at the same time, people who do give do show a level of investment in the ministry that is going on. Uh, so and, and people with or without means who find ways to support financially, like, that's, that's, that's skin in the game. And so, showing up and not putting skin in the game says something, and showing up and putting skin in the game says other things. But what if they come out and they say, "Hey, I don't, I don't, I don't like what you've done, or I disagree with the decision, or this or that," and then they ask, they get a recall, they want it back. Well, any church you need to know the rules. Anybody who gives to a church is releasing any control of those dollars unless the church has pre-approved the use of those dollars in another direction, right? So. If you have a building fund you can give to the building fund and those dollars have to be used for that if you have benevolence that but generally dollars go to the general fund and the church uses them for whatever expenses generally exist in the life of the church well, i remember hearing a story from this man and and the point essentially was you just give it back it's not worth it it's not worth it to fight somebody over a large donation because it would help us because the strain that that puts between us is too significant Hearing another story, when people are defrauded and the people respond, they just go, what should, what's the right thing to do here? Would it be nice to have a bigger bank account? It would. Is it worth the tension and the reputation to go into that and get dragged into that? It's not. And is it only going to distract us from the work that we have before us to make disciples or pursue ministry? If it is, then let's just, why not be wronged? You don't need to fight for it. It's hard for us to think like that. It's hard for us to be concerned like that. So those four examples, someone slaps you, that offense, right, where they slap you in the face. In some cultures, it's shoes. You might remember an incident where somebody throws a shoe at uh, who was the sitting president at the time. It's not just throwing a shoe in some cultures. Like that's, that's far more offensive than a slap in the face. Jesus says, if they slap you on the face, just say, hey, you missed a side. You missed a side. Has anyone here been slapped? It stings. Like, it is not a fun feeling. So to say, yeah, go ahead, here too. It can be Humiliating. I mean, it's not even like, you know, a punch in the face and it might knock you out, but a slap for whatever reason, like, what? Slapped him? Like, open hand, open palm to the cheek? If someone sues you for something, go ahead and give that to them and also give them something else. Someone takes your bike, give them your skateboard, too. They exact something from you, demand something from you, say, Sure. And every pastor here has to use the illustration from Le Mis where he steals the silver. And he goes, Oh, no, you didn't take enough. And I got this too, right? Like, like, like everyone has to talk about that the guy who steals and you give more. But isn't that, I mean, think about it. Judas was the banker of the disciples. Judas, right? Like, like, like he's, the, he's the money keeper. Jesus knew. He wasn't unaware of what this guy was doing. And so let's remember Jesus is thoroughly consistent in his approach to treating wrongdoers like you and me or Judas. He's thoroughly consistent. When you're forced to go with someone for a mile, you just keep going. And if someone begs of you, give and do not refuse. All of these seem gracious. Depending on how you read it, they might seem careless. But here's the point. And this is the otherworldly Sermon on the Mount... Jesus is teaching us a different way, it doesn't make sense, we're not sure how it's all going to work out, this is the way of Jesus, that you do good to those who do bad to you. That you do good to those who do bad to you. You heard the example from the video, if somebody at school breaks your pen or pencil and you want to go, well, you owe me that, right? No. What would happen if you just brought them a box of the same pencils the next day and go, hey, you broke my pencil. I wanted to go ahead and give you a whole box. You kicked my soccer ball over the fence. We're ready to, you know, let you do that 10 more times here or 10 more soccer balls. It's just not what we do. You stole from me. I'm going to continue to give to you. Why do we feel like that's such a weird thing? Because it's not fair. It's not fair. How do you do that? Why do you do that? These are things I have to, you know, like, like a lawyer in my household all the time. Well, every time he says he wants to do something, we do it. Or any movie that he wants to watch, we watch. Or anything that this happens, we do. And that doesn't happen to me you don't do it like that for me, you don't do that for me, or that doesn't seem fair, that doesn't seem right, or whatever. I have to remember even personally, Jesus is not concerned about fairness. And the full extent of the justice of God and the wrath of God will be shown, but not by me. I have no power, and you have no power, to bring to bear the justice that is due only to God. You have no power to bring the, uh, the response, the measured, appropriate, and just response to a world of sin only God does. And so I cannot appropriately say, well, this is how this is supposed to work, or this is how that is supposed to work. But these can really play with our heads. I'd heard a story sometime of kids who were throwing, I think, either big rocks or cinder blocks over an overpass. Not a good thing to do. Struck a car, killed the driver. Well, What do you do there as a parent when your child was killed because of stupid kid throwing cinder blocks over an overpass. What do you do? And you go to your pastor and you say, hey, I'm trying to figure out what to do here. How mad would you be if they brought you to Matthew 5 and said, let's look at what Jesus says about retaliation? How frustrated would you be if they said, consider What Jesus has done for you and for me. It'd be hard to walk into that room and and say, I forgive you for this. It would be harder yet to say, I forgive you for this and I'll adopt you into my family. yet isn't that what god does for us i i hans sin i mar the reputation of god i misrepresent him to this world i do not love him i do not Know him, I live far from him, and what does he do to a snot nosed kid? Uh, but to reveal to him the goodness of Jesus, for me to realize to a tiny, tiny, tiny extent what I have done, and every day I seem to realize it more just how significantly wicked. I could have been, and how much evil still often resides in me, in my flesh, and how I want to act out or retaliate or not live in the empowerment of the Spirit, and yet what does God do to the one whose sin was placed upon the Son of God, but to take me, forgive me, and bring me into his family? And yet, when we're wronged or when we're harmed or we want to see people get what they deserve, it will never be complete because only God knows. And in a fallen world full of sin, full of frustration, full of harm, full of evil, it will never be fully satisfying because you can never be unwronged in the way that you were wronged. You can't undo it. You can't bring back someone who might have died. You can't undo harm that you've caused in a relationship. It's always there. I remember one time saying a bonehead thing to a friend years and years and years ago. No joke, friend flipped me off in the restaurant, walked out. It was a dumb thing to say. Love this guy with all that I have. He loves me too. Our relationship has not been the same. Gone, sat, asked forgiveness, talked to him. But we both know that stupid thing's there. And it has forever changed the way that we talk. My embarrassment over it is still there. The hurt that I caused to him with my words. I can't undo it. So any pursuit of justice in this world is going to feel incomplete because it can't truly fix whatever has happened. But when you look to the Lord, only his pursuit is going to be full and perfect. And you and I, as representatives of the Lord in this world, we have the ability to show a different way Because Jesus is the example of that good life. That he blesses his enemies. Even on the cross, what does he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even then, at the moment where you would think that you could say, if anybody could say anything at that moment, may they get what's coming to them. What does he say? Forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. I would hope, you know, in the narrative of however that went, that those people are telling their kids or grandkids the statements Jesus spoke to them and the way that it changed them. I'd like for that to have happened. Of course, I have no record of that, but like those those to be to be the one that Jesus speaks of in that way. But if you and I know that when Jesus returns and writes every wrong and there's a new heaven and a new earth and resurrected bodies, when we know that's coming, we can live hopefully and joyfully for that because nothing we do on this earth is going to be nearly as good as what that's going to be. If someone steals their bike, you're not worried because you live for a different kingdom where bikes aren't stolen and people don't steal. But you can show them the grace of the God who has shown grace to you. Because let's not forget, while we were still sinners, Christ died. And in our world, maybe heightened this week, but in a world that always looks at getting even, that will try and find ways to bring political retribution, getting yours, winning, destroying your opponent, we need to show the world a different way. The way of Jesus.